Hello and welcome to Voices in Innovation from GigaOM. I am your host, Johnny Baltusberger, and today we have another special episode with our VP of Research, John Collins, speaking to Tall Vice, CTO and co-founder of OverOps. They're going to talk about code quality as well as uh, just OverOps overall, because this episode is in fact sponsored by OverOps. I hope you enjoy. Just to kick off, I'm really interested, Tal, in, in how people arrive uh, where, where where they end up, and and what for you you you've ended up co-founding an organization, which is always makes things interesting. So, so what what brought you here, and, and was it a kind of uh, uh, as sometimes happens a, a real uh, desperate need that you felt the need to address when when you co-founded Overops? Sure thing. So uh, first of all, um, thanks for having me, John, and uh, you know, great to be with you during these strange times that we're living through. So uh, for sure, let me just kind of share a bit about myself. I started my career in technology. I think this is going on almost 20 years ago. Um, I started out for the first few years. I kind of cut my teeth. This is back home in Israel, and. Um, military intelligence and um, folk, especially the aerospace industries working on real-time satellite tracking control arrays. So like thousand year, thousand man year enterprise projects, super high levels of complexity and very, very high stakes. It was good for me because it really enabled me kind of to hone my craft and learn from some really, really smart people. And, and also have a, get this really deep understanding of, you know, what so, what software can really do, you know, uh-huh. send kind of send things into space and the complexities of us. And it was a great journey. And it was through that journey that I founded kind of my um, first company, Visual Tau. And we applied a lot of the um, technologies and the um, practices that le- we have kind of gleaned during those years at aerospace. To essentially enable designers and civil engineers, people working kind of the private sector, if you will, to edit, share, and collaborate over 2D and 3D content from anywhere in the world. So uh-huh. if you're a civil engineer working on an oil pipe in Alaska, you'll be able to pull out your iPad and make changes to the model in 2D and 3D, and then have the people in the back office of Chicago see that in real time. And that company, uh, I ran that and we did very well. And uh, we ended up being acquired by um, Autodesk, makers of AutoCAD. And our technology uh, was relaunched as AutoCAD Web and Mobile, the next generation for what is the company's $1.6 billion flagship product line. Mm -hmm. And out of that, two things happened that actually led to the creation of OverOps. The first thing, uh, the product became very, very successful. And in very short order, we had almost uh, 20, 20 million professional designers and engineers using the tool worldwide, it really took the industry by storm. But then on the other hand, as a fairly small and nimble, nimble team, we found ourselves being crushed by these two polarizing forces as if, as if we were between two black holes. On the one hand, you know, the market was demanding that we ship out all this, these features, innovation, extension, integrations to satisfy the needs of our users, customers, partners, you know, uh, other, other groups and entities within the company on the one hand. 
But then on the other hand, because this is AutoCAD, this is the gold standard within the world design of engineering, it must work every single time without exception. It is very mission critical to the industries that we serve. Uh-huh. And what we found out was that the process of releasing reliable software was incredibly subjective. You kind of, you kind of ship your code out into the world and you just hope that you tested it well enough. And you know, you kind of launch it in, you go run back into the bunker and you wait. Uh-huh. And, and if nothing bad happens in the first six, 12, 24 I mean, hours, you can kind of go back. It's interesting. Uh, you, you've, um, having come from a kind of, uh, uh, not, not safety critical environment, mission critical environment, uh, uh, where everything has to be, um, I use the term right first time guardedly, but uh, you know what I mean by that, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's, uh, very design led, very requirements led, very heavy on the process and governance and so on. And then to move to a place where uh, it's just kind of, you know, th- throw it out there and hope um, that must have, that must have grated a little bit or you, you knew, you knew the consequences of, of getting it wrong. Yeah. And what we found out was the game was almost rigged against us because when you're doing aerospace, you, your release cycles are measured in the years. You know, you have one year, you know, your T minus one, one month, nine months, so you're launching this platform out into space. You have a lot more time and requirements are so well defined. And then you go kind of into this different sector when suddenly the release windows are monthly, they're weekly. Yet the level of mission criticality, the impacts to the business remains still incredibly high. So there's almost this level of unfairness and that created some of those moments that brought us to the creation of overops, right? I remember where you just have to send out an email, you know, to your SVP telling them, well, we released, this released is not good and we're going to have to roll back or we're going to have to deploy an update or a patch. And those would I lovingly or fondly used to call career limiting emails. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, you know, it was in those moments we kind of thought to ourselves, man, there's got to be a better way of doing this. There's got to be a better way of delivering software continuously in a much more reliable manner than just saying, okay, we're just going to rely on our developers to think about every possible bad thing that could happen down the road, which is impossible in the, in the, in the worlds of scale and complexity and edge cases that any company today that's operating web scale has to contend with. We're going to just rely on them to ahead of time, think about everything, make sure they write all the tests for that, and then we just roll the die. So we thought to ourselves, and that is kind of the mission of Overops, was mm-hmm. can we build technology, and that kind of brought most to here, can we build technology that enables people to innovate, to continuously innovate in a much more predictable and reliable manner? And that has been our mission. And We've had the good fortune of working with some really, really interesting companies and large organizations to kind of help them along that journey. So I, I want to come back to today, uh, if I may. Before I do that, um, well, I'll, I'll say I'll say this anyway. So my, my first my first job was programming for a CAD company, uh, Philips, and uh, mm. uh, one of my co- we were doing chip design uh, CAD. 
but one of my colleagues, Mike, went on to work for Autodesk AES, and he was very, very proud of himself because he designed the staircase algorithm. So mm. if, you had a, if you had a multi-story house uh, or, or apartment or whatever, uh, um, and you needed stairs, you click on, click on the staircase button, and that was that was Mike's button right there. So so, uh, and he's he's someone that I learned. At, I mean, back in the day, we had to do peer programming because there just weren't enough workstations to go around. We couldn't afford them. So uh, so um, he 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 was my peer programming buddy. So uh, I, I feel a kind of little bit of skin in the game on the on the staircase as well. Um, oh my God! <laughs> so there you go. So. Um, uh, but what's really interesting, I, I also feel that I've kind of followed a similar thing where doing everything right first time was was really important. And where I was first learning, uh, I was very, very lucky to have a high quality environment and then moving out into an environment that's uh, that's not necessarily less good, but is just differently good. And therefore, there are things that are being missed, which is where you started. But the good news is, I mean, you founded Overops. I'm reading directly off LinkedIn here, but you founded Overops. Uh, over eight years ago, and and so of course all of these things have been addressed now, right? It's uh, uh, the, the, this new world. Uh, we we don't we don't need this kind of stuff anymore, do we? Or is it uh, is it still the same as when you founded it, or has the world changed? And and so it's different sets of things that are pointing to the same uh, the same underlying problems, or or how do you see it now compared to then? We've been lucky in a weird, twisted kind of way. The situation in many ways in the industry has become much worse. So the problem has actually gotten large, much bigger. And let me explain. You know, if you look at even kind of the time that we live in here, you know, circa 2020, software used to be something that was either, you know, invisible to most people yeah they use the bank their atm machine right and they imagine they know their software behind but it's something that's pretty invisible um to them or they only use it in a kind of professional setting you know kind of the cad users that we kind of talk about and they're sophisticated users and they understand kind of the rules of the game the software is designed to work but it's not always going to work so you got to hit that save button you know every five or ten minutes and over the course of the last few years, and especially this crazy 2020 that we're living in, we've seen how software essentially taken over almost any meaningful part of our lives. And the stakes for delivering high reliability software have become exponentially uh, bigger, if you will. Let me give an example to kind of ground us, you know. If I told you, you know, uh, if I told uh, my mother, okay, in her 70s, uh, four years ago that, um, you know, mom, uh, my web conferencing software, I don't know, you go to me or something, you know, five years ago, I couldn't log in for a few hours yesterday and it was really uh, uh, a hassle for me, you know, because we had to know, get on phones instead, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it was really uncomfortable for our meeting. My mom said, oh, that, that's unfortunate. But if I told her now in 2020 that she can't log on and see her grandkids because Zoom, you know, had a application mm -hmm. bug that caused the prevent users from logging in, she can't see her grandkids now. You know, she's supposed to do bedtime stories with them and she can't use Zoom or she can go online to her lecture you know, that she's been waiting for for a few days now, you know, she'll be, it's this major disturbance to her life. And that's just kind of one quick example. We've seen this 
you know, and we've blogged about it, you know, and on our blog, you can see we're like, no, cases with Robin who disrupting trading. Do you remember the, um, uh, even here in the U.S. on the Democrat, you know, the Democratic primary, uh-huh. right? It was just, I think, like four or five, six months ago, earlier in the year, right? And people couldn't vote. And, and I'm not even going into like, you know, larger questions about that. We see that software and the reliability of software now impacts people's lives, you know, in a very, very deep way because we do everything on our phones, right? We do, we bank, we communicate, we book our travel, we book our transportation, et cetera, et cetera. So the stakes for on one hand being competitive in the market and innovating uh-huh. rapidly while still maintaining a very, very high level of what we call continuous reliability have never been high. And that is something that when we started the company, we did not foresee that there's just this explosion. You know, software has just taken over our lives for good or for bad. It, it's interesting. I, the, I mean, I, I'm a bit of a, a cliche monitor and uh, the, the cliche of things moving from being a nice to have to a need to have uh, used to be used like, yeah, once every once every few months, I'm I'm hearing that every week. People are saying, yeah, like digital transformation, like software, like agility, all of these terms. They've they've gone from uh, things that people are going to get round to eventually and evolve into. To oh my goodness, we should have started that five years ago, um, and and we're losing out to the competition. And you keep um, you keep using a word which 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 I'd like to bring in because I think it's a really, really important word. And that word is innovation. Um, and in, in the areas that you've been uh, looking at and, and working with, I, I think it's not just about software because software is a very nebulous that you, you can do anything you like with software. And that's the problem. Uh, the, the challenge is how you do the right things. And sometimes that comes to, to trying lots of different things. And, and uh, if you're, if you're going in the wrong direction, stopping and going in the right direction as quickly as possible. So that possibly, I'm putting this to you as a hypothesis, is exacerbating the situation that, that organizations are desperately trying to do more and more things and therefore hitting more and more quality issues as they do so. Yeah, I think what we've seen is this super rapid transformation, you know, from, I mean, I'm going to be getting a big cliche in a bit, but for just a second, and then kind of backtrack from kind of the world of yesterday, if you will, where you would physically go to a bank, right? You would call somebody to uh, book travel, et cetera, et cetera. You would even call somebody versus texting or TikToking, whatever with it. No, so the world has changed, but software, you know, if you're in a large organization, your software was written five, 10, more likely more like 10 or 20 years ago. And you suddenly have to rapidly adapt it to today's reality, right? You suddenly have to deliver all these innovations. You know, if you're going back to that Robinhood example, right? You're Morgan Stanley Wealth Management, for example, or or any one of the major banks. And suddenly, you know, it's no longer about people calling their wealth management advisor, you know, and talking to him about which stock they should buy. So now it's just millennials, right? Doing it on their phone. And these companies, right? Have to, these large organizations have to take notice and they have to take 10, 20 year old code bases Uh and adapt them very, very quickly and refactor them into this new reality. And that is a tremendous risk because they are now caught in that same, you know, in that same precarious position between those two black holes on one end, 
you know, they have to deliver all these new features, all these new capabilities to keep up with the Joneses of the industry. Well, on the other hand, they're doing complex surgery to these very, very complicated systems. And a lot of times the people who wrote them are, not, are no longer even there. You know, it's kind of like performing heart surgery on a train that's running kind of at 100 miles per hour. It's very, very hard for the, or those organizations to, uh, to keep up. And that puts them in a big bind a lot of the time. They're committed to refactoring their software, but the chances of failure, and to your point, having to backtrack from those initiatives, what we've seen, the stakes could not be um, bigger. I would not mm -hmm. want to be in some of our, of our clients' shoes. They've taken on some really, really big challenges, and most will succeed, but some will fail. And it's interesting that you should put it that way. I mean, how would you see the pie charts in terms of if you look at your the all the organizations you're speaking to, your customers, your prospects, your partners, and, and, and so on? How roughly, I mean, very roughly, how many of them would you say are kind of with a kind of looming technology debt and you know, really, really struggling versus some are just kind of doing all right coping could be better and, and some are doing very well indeed and uh, are either out the other side or are already we're, we're already in a good position but how, how, how do you rank them i think the folks are doing really well as, as well as could be meaning everybody's working hard it's not as if the folks that are doing well working six hours a day uh days you know they're still working hard but they're, they're, those are kind of the really you know the super new web scale companies that were born really in the last five years, right? So they have very modern pipelines. Their level of legacy code are very low. They can switch to new frameworks much more quickly. This, their code is much more microservice, you know, container oriented. Their CICD pipelines are much more in check. I would say then you have, you know, between everybody else, it's kind of a 50-50 split between folks that are, you know, they have the debt, but they're doing okay. Maybe the industry is not facing a tremendous amount of pressure right now. So they have time to do it um, carefully and they have the time to put in the resources. And I would say the other half, it's like they were swimming in a nice calm pond and then somebody threw two somebody essentially let two sharks into that pond and now they need to adapt to this reality they got to change quickly and they have a lot of legacy debt and the processes are not there and it's 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 very painful and these are a lot of time the biggest organizations in the world actually that have to kind of adapt almost too quickly to this reality Reminds me of the, the adage that a, a crisis is a problem with no time left to solve it. It's uh, yeah, of all of those organizations, they, they've all got the problem, um, but they just don't have the sharks yet. Yep. Um, but they will, it, it's the moment that they do that the, the, the crisis hits. Uh, and so what would you say, um, I mean, you, you, you speak to these organizations all the time. And uh, you know, you you come with 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 your own uh, technologies and capabilities and so on, which I'm sure are part of the answer. But when you're talking to um, particularly the the organisations dealing with the sharks right now, I mean, what do you say? You, you can't just say, well, buy our stuff and it's good and everything will be better. That there has to be a more 
kind of comprehensive and complicated answer than that. How, how do they come to you and what kinds of things are they, they saying that they need and, and how, how do you start to have that conversation? And, and in, in terms of almost moving quality into center stage and helping them do things with on the side of right, if you like, so having it, having it, having right as the kind of core of what they're doing as a, a rather than having doing the right thing as the exception of what they're doing. How, how, how do you work with them to, to help? For sure. And a lot of time we can't conflate, you know, the fact that the company is in, you know, in a precarious or they have a lot of challenges ahead of them with them not having very, very smart, very, very capable, intelligent people. So it's not as if you can come with some high level, you know, pie in the sky, value proposition and then just you have to make a very very strong and 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 accurate case as to what it is that you think you can help them and the way we go about this you have to get them thinking right you have to get them to say how much of the way you're doing things today is kind of and i alluded to that earlier in the conversation is subjective meaning you just Put something, you, you did kind of, you know, you had two weeks to test it, you're your engineers, you put some thought into it, you kind of, and then you just put it out there and you wait. So that's a very subjective thing. And you don't really have a very accurate, measurable baseline of what constitutes a good release or what's your reliability score, if you will, today versus yesterday. You have to think about getting people to think about this, you know, in the same way that you would about security or any kind of facet that is critical to the engineering of the software. You have to get people to start thinking about measuring it. And then mm -hmm. once you establish that baseline, you say, okay, we don't know. So when you come in as a vendor, a lot of times people say, well, we don't know what our score, we don't know. So I said, all right, let's kind of apply the technology. Let's run, let's run some tests. Let's get a sense of where you are right now. And that is kind of, and it is what it is moment, meaning a lot of times they'll see things, they'll be horrified. You know, we didn't even know we we're shipping these issues. And a lot of times it's just, okay, we seem to be doing okay. But once you have a baseline, you're in a much better position to then test any release that you put out there uh, to test its deviation from that baseline. And not uh -huh. only do that, that's kind of the one part. The second part is, not only do that at the very end when it's all right, we pushed it into production and now we're going to see, you know, if this is better or worse than what we did yesterday. It's actually about implementing this process of continuously measuring the reliability of the software across the entire delivery life cycle. So the second code, essentially the second the developer's fingertips hit that commit button and, you know, when you start testing and verifying the code, you should see, exactly the state no the reliability score the status of that code is moving through that pipeline it may start off looking great and then it hits something unexpected and you don't have the test to verify that and if you don't have that baseline you don't have the ability to uh see that deviation you're going to put something out there that's really bad so it's getting folks to think about a how do we integrate quality not just it's at a certain stage, maybe at the dev stage of QA or very late in the process where it's essentially now in the hands of the ops team, which a lot of time barely even know the code that they're in charge of because they're mostly uh -huh. operational, if you will. 
how do we create a baseline? How do we measure and identify any anomalies from any deviations from that across that SDLC, the software delivery lifecycle? And by doing that, you can really help companies to think about the way by which they release the software in a much more kind of uh, thoughtful and predictable manner. And just one last thing to touch on that, it's, it's kind of an evolution of, you know, five or seven years ago, you know, CICD is really taking the world by storm, right? You know, five or seven years ago, it would be common practice for even large companies to just throw binaries, you know, into production almost manually. Have somebody literally copy pasting or again, maybe a slightly more elegant version of that, but it was very manual. It wasn't that automated and the industry has gone through a process where they understood we need more product predictability. We need more automation around it. The industry is now going through that same process and we've seen it because of the pressures that we talked about also with reliability. How do we move from CI to CD to then CR to say, okay, it's not just about releasing software out there every week because we need to meet the objectives of the business, but how do we do so in a way that does not negatively impact the experience of our users, a la what we've seen, you know, this week, for example, with, you know, the Zoom debacle, uh, if you will. I, I hear you. And uh, I'm wondering, because um, there's various stakeholders involved, isn't there? That, that um, certainly back in the day, but I mean, to be fair, when I was a developer, which is an awfully long time ago, but I've talked to people about this since, um, we did have a quality first mindset. There was a, you know, there was a review checklist. We had peer programming and peer review and, and so on. And as I said, I came from a very lucky place. I remember I read a book called Peopleware by uh, Tom DeMarco and Timothy Lister. And I thought, well, all, and it was all about the things that can go wrong. And I thought it was, uh, I thought it was fiction. And then I moved to another company and found it wasn't fiction at all. It was, it was very real and, and everything that could go wrong was going wrong at that company. So, uh, um, uh, it, it's, I, I think it, it, that begs a really interesting question, which is there will be organizations that get it and are already doing it and, and, and have things right, which is, which is great. But equally the ones that aren't doing it right. I mean, do you get pushback from developers, for example, do you get pushback from the managers that say we're far too busy to, to, uh, and, and the old security thing of we, we don't want to know what's going wrong because we're too busy trying to fix everything. So we don't want your measurements and we don't want your tools. For sure, you know, there's, uh, you kind of talked about it earlier, there's the people that are already swimming with the sharks and there are people that are kind of in the pond and they're looking and they're seeing the sharks, you know, out there on the dock, you know, putting in their mask and their, and their floaties, you know, about to jump into the water, but they're still not quite um, there. So it's usually uh -huh. you're going to have a lot more success, you know, selling security, for example, to somebody who's never been hacked or their job is not on the line if they get hacked, but is, is a much taller order uh, than to somebody who has either had it in the past or is aware of the um, risks of that. And a lot of kind of the inbound or incoming interest to us is, the, is from companies who have recently got burned. But I would also say beyond that, you know, I think, and you kind of touched on that in a very interesting way. You said you've had the opportunity to work in a very, very, you know, quality driven, uh, people minded, people focused, you know, um, organization. 
And that is good, but that also in a way is kind of the bad. And what I mean by that is we put the entire onus of quality on our developers. We expect them to foresee everything that could go wrong down the line. And in a very predictable environment, you know, you're shooting maybe like a satellite into space and get three years to prepare. Maybe that is possible. But in these web scale environments that we operate today, even the best developers out there cannot possibly think about any, each and every edge case that might hit them, especially as the code starts moving right, as the code starts, you know, making its way and climbing, you know, from dev to staging to production AB to production. It's very hard for them to see and to know and to forecast all the things that are going to go wrong. And this is where a lot of the things actually that have materialized over the last few years, the ability to apply machine learning, for example, comes into play where we can say, okay, we're going to augment the reality, if you will, of these developers by they will do the best that they can to foresee any issues, to forecast any errors that might happen. But if something unforeseen happens, you, they will also have the ability to know about it before their customers um, do. And that takes a lot of the onus and actually makes continuous reliability's concept a lot more, um, makes people a lot more open and responsive to it. We're telling developers, this is actually a tool for you. So it's not, so when you release, when you throw that, you know, the ball and close up and close down the hatch and hopes it doesn't explode, you will have technology that will actually tell you before you get that, you know, Friday 8 p.m. call from the ops team telling you that things are going wrong. So anyway, that's kind of a yep. long-winded answer to that, but I kind of try to touch on from multiple angles. Yeah, no, very good. And uh, I mean, ultimately, you know, the, the term that you've kind of inserted into, into this thread is, is continuous reliability, which is bringing quality up to be a, a, a similar class citizen as uh, um, you know, continuous to, uh, integration and continuous delivery and, and just bringing that quality level up. Um, what would you see as the um, kind of, uh, if the, every company is different, right? So, so don't, don't get me wrong, but would you say that there's a kind of uh, a really good example of a, of a, a, a path that an organization, you know, one of your customers maybe that's adopted um, uh, the, the best practices and tooling that we're talking about here, um, the, the stages they went through, that, that's a really good example to, to show what can be done and, and uh, where, where organizations can get through, get to. For sure. So um, one of the, the organization that quote unquote, I enjoy the most working with are ones that are pretty mature in their CICD um, journey, where you can go from CICAN, what we talk about, the CICD, to CI, to the D, to the uh, R. Folks there have already have, you know, established pipelines across their company or across the division about how they ship software. And then you can say, okay, let's understand what are the gates. Where do we want to set up what we call our quality gates? where we can say, okay, we are going to essentially at this point in time, in this environment, at this exact stage, we are going to see what is the score for the code right now, you know, compared to yesterday's baseline. And we can do that. And how can we integrate that into the tools that you guys already use? 
because that makes things so much sticky. So for example, if you're using GitHub or GitLab or Jenkins or you're on Azure or AWS, whatever tooling, whatever framework you have for pushing out software, what we want to do essentially is add that level of, you know, AI that goes across that delivery lifecycle and say, okay, this is where, this is where we're going to put, uh, you know, our checkpoints. This, these are the gates. This is where we're going to score things and this is how we're going to integrate them and then create that feedback loop back mm -hmm. to the right team. Because a lot of the time, the issues are, and especially in large companies, that things may be detected, things may be spotted, but the person in charge of them is so far away in the process yeah, that just getting that information, that knowledge to them becomes a roadblock. So companies that have a more mature CICD pipeline make my job a lot easier because I almost don't have to do all that infrastructure work with them to get to the point where they can establish those checkpoints. They've already have those borders, okay, laid out between the different environments. And now we just have to put those checkpoints versus having to create those borders with them, which is usually a journey that will be measured in the almost years. I, I can see how um, putting checkpoints in a chaotic situation is, is not going to be a, a, a simple job and uh, how, uh, so a first step maybe um, is, I mean, it, it's not necessarily an easy step, but what you're saying is that organizations that already understand the notion of a, a coherent pipeline uh, and then can say, you know, even at a high level, here are the stages we want to work through as we deliver, as we, as we create software, as we integrate it and as we deploy it. Um, that then gives you the backbone that you need to, to then apply quality gates and then apply the measurements, understand where, where the issues are and, uh, and then mature and, and build upon that. Is maturing a fair word to apply in this scenario? A hundred percent. I've seen, you know, the more companies have a level of, maturity and comfort in their CICD that you can kind of advance to that next, uh, to that next stage. And, you know, three years ago, it was much harder. Folks were just going, yeah, we have a bunch of Jenkinses, but we're really trying to figure it out. But the industry has really just through the pressures and just everything that's been happening over the last few years have really matured very, very, um, quickly in the same way that the cloud, you know, maybe five years ago was like something you talk about in conferences and now it's just like, it's table stakes. So the same thing has really happened with CICD, I would say over the last two or three years, it used to be this cool Silicon Valley thing. And now it's just, it, it's totally crossed that chasm and it's everywhere. And uh -huh. that makes our job as a company to extend that uh, a lot um, easier and more productive we can really spend time with our customers saying okay let's really understand the state of your code's reliability today and that way we can know that tomorrow any you know degradation from that will flag things and another thing i want to just top on top of that that also introduces the concept of prevention which is very very important because what you can do is if you have a quality gate and that quality gate has detected something back a developer unknowingly introduced an issue that was not expected and caused an error or any form of no negative impact to the system mm -hmm. 
-hmm. the quality gate can actually interact uh, proactively with the CI/CD pipeline in terms to block that release. So you're moving not just from observing things and saying, oh, we put out a bad release, let's roll it back, let's, you know, capture information around it from the system, let's see what overops can tell us about why it happened, etc. You're actually moving to a place where you have this AI that's blocking it from ever making it into production or even to a high-level staging environment where, it can, where that issue can easily uh, disappear in the noise. So CIC, a mature CICD pipeline also opens up not just for identification resolution, but actually for prevention. And we all know the cliche about, you know, an ounce of prevention, you know, and cure, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's fantastic. And I, I want to, um, what I'd normally do at this stage is uh, kind of try and put, put a bow around everything. And, and uh, I, I want to attempt to do that myself for a change. I'd normally say, what do you think people should be doing to kick off? But let, 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 me, let me have a go and see if I've, what I've understood uh, you saying correctly. Uh, it's that many organizations today have a, a rear view mirror uh, approach to quality, which is trying to trying to solve problems uh, as they spot them, as opposed to proactively dealing with them. A starting point for that is is to put more structure into the pipeline so you can apply those gates. But I think the key thing that you said, and I wonder if this is uh, what we want to leave people with, but or uh, please do uh, build on top of this or, or say something different is. Um, that it's about not being afraid of visibility. It's yeah, it, it is about measurements, uh, and that that holds the key to one, once you can see things and once you know what's going on, you're in a much better place. And so you need to embrace that rather than um, feeling that uh, it might reveal scary things and, and trying to avoid it. Perfectly put. You know, it's 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 the same with security. Yes, you can have the option of kind of burying your hand in the sand and not knowing what your vulnerabilities are, but you know, you're taking a bit of risk that one day those will be exploited. And the same is true with uh, software reliability. You can put out releases in that kind of unpredictable historical way by which you just, you put it out there and you just wait. And if nobody complains in the first 48 hours, then you're fine. But you are putting yourself, especially in today's realities, as I said, we've kind of given examples, you know, if you look at the Robin Hoods, the Zooms, you know, there's so many companies today, you know, that have, you know, a lot of time taking that approach and they've been burned. And uh, the cost of that, you know, the, the brand reputation, everything that has to do with that is almost never worth it. And that's where we kind of a lot of time help folks, but my preference is always to help them before than help them uh, after, i.e. the whole prevention versus, you know, Q part. But yeah, you said perfectly. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time and, uh, uh, and, and, and all the insights that you've uh, presented o over this, uh, this podcast, Tal. And uh, um, thank you uh, for, for being, being on this. And, and what I'd like to say is if anyone's out there listening to this and this raises any um, questions or, or comments, then feel free to, to reach out to us at, uh, at GigaOM and, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll make sure that uh, um, we feed back to, to yourself, Tal, and uh, uh, any, any questions or comments that people have um, and, and we'll look to answer them. So just uh, thank, thank you very much and I look forward to speaking to you again. My pleasure. That was a truly fascinating discussion. If you want to hear more about 
Overops, you can of course go to uh, their website, but you can also go to gigaohm.com where you can find a single report or you can subscribe to the full library of reports and learn everything you could want to know about the future and state of IT and technology. For GigaOM, I'm Johnny Baldisberger, and this has been Voices in Innovation.